Who speaks for the child in court? Are the children expected to be in court? Are they even allowed to be in court? Doesn't matter how old they are. The child who's alleged to be neglected, abused, or dependent is the center of the case. And under North Carolina law, the child is a party to the court case, just like the county department is a party and each parent is a party. The county department and each parent have an attorney. So is the child represented by an attorney? And what happens when the child is an infant? Or like in our cases, an 18-month-old in one case, and in the other case, siblings who are two, three, and five years old. Do the expectations about a child's involvement or participation in the court case change once the child reaches a certain age, like being a teenager? episode, we're taking a break from our court case to turn our attention to the voices of the children whose lives these cases are focused on. You will learn about the child's guardian ad litem, which is also referred to as a GAL. This is who represents and speaks for a child in a child welfare case in North Carolina. You'll hear from staff at the state guardian ad litem program, a county guardian ad litem volunteer and an attorney advocate, and district court judges. What is the child's guardian ad litem? Well, this is the person who represents the child's best interest in court and makes recommendations for the court to consider when it's making its dispositional order for the family. Remember, that includes services as well as placement and what the ultimate plan, whether that's reunification or adoption or custody or guardianship with somebody else who's not the parent, is what the final permanent plan for the family will be. Cindy Bizzle from the North Carolina Guardian Atlanta Program explains how a GAL gets involved. When the Department of Social Services files a petition alleging abuse, neglect, and many times dependency, um, but at least abuse and neglect, the guardian ad litem program is appointed and a guardian ad litem volunteer and a guardian ad litem attorney advocate are co-appointed to represent the best interests of the child. Every state has its own laws about how a child who's alleged to be abused or neglected is represented in court. And North Carolina has a unique system that consists of a GAL team, which includes GAL staff, a GAL volunteer, and an attorney advocate. North Carolina has a state guardian litem program, which is part of the North Carolina Administrative Office of the Courts. And that state program provides technical assistance, support, and supervision to local guardian litem offices located throughout the state. Cindy Bizzle explains North Carolina State GAL program. So the Guardian Ad Litem program um, has a central state office staff, and local Guardian Ad Litem programs in all of the district court judicial districts across the state. So um, there is a paid district administrator who administers the program in the district and has oversight of volunteer recruitment, screening, training, and supervision. And there are also um, attorney advocates either on contract or on staff in every district. There are volunteer supervisors and occasionally in a program there might be a program specialist or a um, administrative assistant. In addition to the staff GAL programs at the state and local level, There are individual GAA volunteers and attorney advocates who work with the GAL staff to make up the team who represents each child. 
Dina Fleming, who was with the state GAL program at the time of this interview, explains North Carolina's law about the role of the guardian ad litem and the difference between the GAL volunteer and attorney advocate. And under the guardian ad litem program, it is a dual representation model, and so we've got an attorney paired with a volunteer. Um, but when you look at the statute, it talks about the attorney advocate, um, you know, presents evidence to the court. They're going to cross-examine witnesses. They're going to protect the child's legal rights. And so when you look at the statute, there's sort of a natural division of responsibilities um, with the attorney focusing on sort of the legal issues of the case, um, whereas the guardian ad litem volunteer is going to be focusing on sort of the investigation, the facts, and making those recommendations. Um, the child client is the, um, is the attorney's client, as well as the guardian ad litem, again, that dual representation. Um, but the representation is best interest and not expressed um, wishes of the child. And um, I like to think of the guardian ad litem volunteer as sort of the liaison between um, our attorney advocate and their child clients. So they're going to be typically meeting with the child, getting that information to provide to the court. And um, the attorney advocate is the mouthpiece, if you will, for the guardian ad litem volunteer and uh, the child with respect to the best interest recommendations. The GAL team has to make recommendations to the court as to what it believes is in the child's best interest. Carmen Muggy, a GAL volunteer in Wake County, explains how she works with the GAL staff to determine the appropriate recommendations for an individual child. The way we do it in Wake County is, um, obviously they're at our disposal anytime we have any questions. So if there's a sticky point in your case or you have concerns, you call them. But in general, um, what we do is we, we provide, the, the volunteers provide monthly updates to our supervisors. Um, and at that point, it's also another point where your supervisor may call you if they've got questions or concerns. And then, obviously, when it comes to court report time, that is a time of big, big engagement, you know, where you've really laid out your recommendations and, and your investigation. And at that point, we have a lot of back and forth with the supervisor. Um, but the supervisor's kept abreast, primarily, you know, through our monthly reports and any time you may pick up the phone, you know, to ask them questions. Dee Horde, an attorney advocate in Wake County, who works with Carmen, explains the team approach. The volunteer does the, the kind of legwork, the visits, is the actual voice of the child, um, and she works hand-in-hand -hand with the supervisor in our office, um, and they both work hand-in-hand -hand with the attorney who goes to court with the volunteer um, to represent the best interests of the kids. We obviously have disagreements from time to time, and we want those disagreements resolved um, mm -hmm. before we go to court, if possible, um, but that's generally how... Right. As a GAL volunteer, we're not experts in the law. We know the case. We know what's happening with the children, with the parents. But to have the legal backstop, in a sense, is invaluable to us. They'll ask questions, you know, when we submit our reports. And before court, they'll also, you know, ask us a few points and ask us which areas of emphasis, you know, that we, you know, that they should make in, in court. So it's really a very good relationship. It provides a lot of support for the volunteers having um, these knowledgeable attorneys at our side. We certainly want to make sure our volunteers are prepared for court instead of just showing up to court with a report and us not having talked to them first, especially on contested, on right. contested cases to make sure you're prepared. So you said sometimes we have disagreements. Mm -hmm. Typically, what are those about? Whether it's, whether it's uh, supervised versus unsupervised visits or whether it's um, even, I mean, a primary or, or secondary plan, whether somebody thinks guardianship is the right plan or adoption or reunification, mm -hmm. generally it's about the, the, big, the, big, the big issues, the visits, the, the primary and secondary plans. 
So is that something you're deciding together, or is that primarily the responsibility of the volunteer in terms of the recommendation? So most of the time, it's the volunteer working hand-in-hand -hand with the supervisor. On, on close cases, um, what, what we like as the attorneys like is for the volunteer and the supervisor to also talk to us to make sure that her or the volunteer's recommendations are going to be legally, um, that we can support those legally. Before recommendations can be made, the guardian and litem volunteer must learn about the case, meet with the child, and conduct an investigation that focuses on the child's best interests. Carmen explains how she starts her work on a case. So as a volunteer GAL, really in every case that I've had, the first thing I do is go to meet um, with the social worker and review the case file. I like to meet with the child within a couple of days as well, and sometimes I've met with the child before reviewing the case file, but personally I like to see the case file because it gives you, you know, a history as to, you know, what's happened before you meet the child, before you meet, you know, foster parents or endure the parents. So that's the first thing I like to do is go to the Department of Social Services office that's been assigned the case and um, review the case file. So that's step one, and then from there, you know, as I said, shortly thereafter meet the child. So um, in my cases I've had younger children so they don't really understand my role for the most part. You know the the oldest one of my uh, child clients is nine you know so it has not been the older ones that may really understand um, but I still like to meet them you know friendly face um, and explain to them that I'm there to advocate for them in whatever way I can explain it depending on their age. Carmen further explains her process. So um, Basically, you try to get as many facts as possible, you know, and um, from the initial reviewing the court reports and understanding the baseline as to why the children were taken into care, then you start going down the various paths, um, getting to know, you know, um, the children, their parents, any, any doctors, therapists, school, and getting contact with teachers. So you start trying to understand a baseline as to, you know, what's happened in the past and what's happening now with the children and what services they may need. So it kind of, you begin at the very beginning and it expands out once you start learning more about a case, as, as you would imagine, right? Um, it, one investigation, after you get information, let's say from a therapist, it may lead you, you know, to talk to a teacher about any learning disabilities they may have, for instance. The GAL volunteer is required to meet with the child, and Carmen talks about this. We see them once a month at a minimum, and you'd like to see them in different environments if you can. So, you know, not just go to the foster, um, you know, the foster home. If you can see them in other environments to see how they are doing in other environments, you know, go to um, see them in daycare if they're in daycare or go to their soccer game or, or other ways. See them with their parents um, as well. I think that's a, to me, that's a really important um, thing is to see the visits with the parents. Usually at the beginning, all the visits are supervised and they're held in Wake County, you know, buildings. And so you can go, go see the visits. Um, and I think those are very, very important. The GAL volunteer works with the local program staff and attorney advocate to make recommendations that will be introduced to the court at different dispositional hearings. Remember, there's the initial dispositional hearing and then review and permanency planning hearings. And these hearings occur throughout the case. The guardian litem makes recommendations that focuses on the child and what the GAL believes is in the child's best interest. Cindy Vissel explains this process. We didn't have to be in court. That would be ideal, but we have to be there because that's where we can bring the information that we gather and the recommendations we feel are in the child's best interest and basically put them before the judge and it, 
often one of the things we work with our volunteers on is to remember you've done all this work, you've formed your opinion and your recommendation, but that's really where it stops. The judge is the final decision maker in these cases. And um, so they, they recognize that they're, they're part of a process and they bring kind of, they round out what the judge gets because the judge hears from parents and their attorneys, hears from the social workers and, and their attorney about, they just represent kind of these two poles in the case. And when you have someone who's really focused on the child, they're in there intersecting with all of that and kind of making, weaving a, a more complete tapestry about what's happening. Dee Horde, who works with Carmen, talks about the court report. We submit court reports for disposition, or mm-hmm. Carmen does the volunteers submit court reports for disposition. We obviously want to focus on the needs and the wishes of the child first and foremost. Uh, we make more. We make a, a strong point in Wake County, especially sometimes our court reports are due to the court three or four weeks after after the volunteer gets the case. So that's not a long time to do an investigation before you got to be telling the judge something about the case. Um, so we want them to focus primarily on the needs and the wishes of the, the child. Make sure they're safe. Make sure they're getting the things they need. Make sure they're enrolled in school and, and getting mental health assessments if they if they need it or any kind of medications if they need it. Um, and then if if we're able to get all that done then we can kind of work towards what the parents, uh, what their status is. Dee mentioned the child's wishes. It's important to note that what the child wants, what's the child's expressed preference, is not necessarily what the GAL believes is in that child's best interests. And the GAL represents the child's best interests. This means there may be a difference of opinion between what the child told the GAL he or she wants, for example, to go back home and what the GAL believes is in the child's best interest. For example, to be adopted. I asked Ian Carmen if that happened, and if so, how they handled that conflict. Part of our reports, we always um, reflect the wishes of the child. And I would say in almost every one of my cases so far, it's contradicted the wishes of the child. because the children, at least you know, the younger children, seem to have this strong attachment, and um, it is a difficult you know transition for them. And sometimes they feel guilty, you know, um, you know, the state of their their parents' um, current state. So yes, we do reflect in all of our you know all of our reports include the wishes of the child and as much as possible in their own words. Um, so it is a conversation we have with with the children, and in the end. Um, I, I don't really necessarily have a difficulty reconciling that conflict, um, you know, because because a lot of times you realize that they're children and they have been a lot of times in these abused and neglected situations. A lot of times they feel like it's their fault, or and they don't always know what's best for them. Obviously, so it hasn't been something that's not at me really, my conscience, because I feel you know pretty strongly that you know they require adult supervision to help guide them and what's best for them. And um, it hasn't been something that I've struggled with. I was concerned that I would struggle with it, you know, prior to becoming a volunteer, but I but I have not really struggled with having a different opinion than the children. Not at this point. I think with older children, it may be tougher um, because. 
now they do have more of a say is to, you know, they're old enough to have a, a well-formed opinion. And I think that's where the conflict would really be difficult when an older child has a differing opinion than you do. And that, I'm sure, would be really, really hard. Um, I'm sure you've seen those. One of, the hardest, one of the hardest individual things I've had to do in court was in one particular case with a 16-year-old young man. Um, making, I'm standing up to make my closing argument to the judge. And I got this tug on my on my shirt, and this young man's behind me. He says, "Can you tell the judge that I want this?" And you know, I, I think he, he was to go. I want. I just want to go home. So, I, standing up, I said, "Your Honor, you know, young man wants you to know that he wants to go home. However, we don't feel that that's in his best interest, and that's in, and that's a that's a hard thing to do. I don't have as much contact with the children as the volunteers do because I see them every month at least. Right. Um, but that's a that's not an easy thing to do, especially for an older child. Like an you older said. child, I think, would be so much harder, so much harder because they they've got much more of a holistic view of life than a little child does and understand. Um, I think that would be really tough. A lot of kids, as, as as an attorney, a lot of kids know what attorneys do, what they are, who kind of what your job is, and they know that they've got this team of people that are advocating for them, but having them understand that this team of people is advocating for them while they may disagree with them is a little bit harder sometimes for some of those kids to right. understand. Right. Yeah, do you ever have a child just say to you, just only argue what I want, stop stop saying the other stuff that I don't agree with? I, I haven't had a child say that when I talk to them, and, and, and especially if I know there's going to be some disagreement between the child and, and our, um, our position, I'll tell them, now we, I'm going to tell the judge and you should tell the judge also if you're coming to court what you want and what your wishes are on this. But we have to tell the judge what we think is best for you because we're advocating for what we feel is best for you. And that may not be the same thing as what you think is best for you. Do you think sometimes children are relieved to know that they can say, I want to go back home or whatever it is that they want, but that somebody's going to argue the opposite and that's secretly maybe what they're hoping will happen is the opposite? I hope so. <laughs> I think in one of my cases where it's a nine-year-old, um, she would say she would like to live with her mom, but um, I think it's out of guilt. I, I think she's still very protective over her mom, always wants to know what her mom's up to, and I, I think it's almost the role reversal where she wants to take care of her mom. And right. But I know she's happy in her current placement. I can see her growth. Um, so I think that is exactly how, you know, what you said describes her, that deep down she knows she's better off where she is, but has a, kind of feels an obligation, this role reversal um, of taking care of her, of her mom. Carmen, that's a great point. There's so many children who are parentified, and there are so many children who outwardly in open court or, or otherwise would say, oh, yeah, I want to go home to mom, but then in therapy or to the volunteers would say, you know what, I'm, it's so nice being a kid. It yeah. is so nice being able to be 12 years old, and at this, whatever home I'm in, being able to be a kid. And I don't right. have to fix, I don't have to clean, I don't have to help my younger brothers or sisters get dressed and do their homework right. and that stuff. So that, that I think that would be an example of what you're saying. is a right. child who might outwardly say, yes, I want to go back with mom. But deep down says, I'm just, this is pretty nice being a kid. Right. One thing to remember is that there's a difference between the child's best interests and who has a better or nicer home for the child. Best interest can mean returning a child to his or her parent when that parent can provide a safe home and provide adequate care and supervision to protect the child, even when there is a different home that can offer more opportunities for the child. Deanna Fleming talks about this issue. You hear a lot about DSS, you know, what's the minimal standard of care. 
we talk about that with our GAL volunteers because what may seem like the minimal standard of care for somebody that is upper middle class is a lot different for somebody that comes from a background of poverty. And so, um, you know, understanding that it may be fine for children to share a bedroom, you know, because there's not four bedrooms for four children, um, that it may be okay for someone to sleep on the couch. And that's, that's okay for the family because, you know, that's not a neglect issue. Um, so trying to help our volunteers sort of understand that something that may seem abnormal in their upbringing or their, you know, day-to-day living is perfectly acceptable because it doesn't rise to the level of, of neglect. And to keep that in mind when they're making their recommendations um, about a parent working their plan or whether reunification is appropriate, um, that you that they, they keep that in the back of their mind that they can't sort of raise the bar on a parent um, when it comes to um, making those recommendations to the court. Cindy joined Dina to discuss this further. They, they don't want adequate for the kids. They want the best. And um, so that's another kind of, it's another teaching point for us in our training that I, I think what happens is because of the immediacy of the child's needs and the child's case in court, volunteers want to kind of address that situation. And what research shows, what what kids will tell you who've been in foster care, they want that connection with their families. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a citizen who's coming in to make recommendations to the court about today, sometimes the long-term value of that permanent connection with their family I can see where at times volunteers would be like, well, you know what, you're the parent, you've had your opportunity. I'm here for this kid. And so I'm not saying they don't consider the parents, but they really consider the child. I think that's where it's important for our guardians ad litem to to have a connection with the parent, to speak with the parents and to really observe visitations because if they're only seeing a child at the foster home, they're only going to have one impression. They they are trained to, you know, they need to look at all these collaterals and make this investigation. But if they go to that visitation and see the bond that this child has with their parent, I think that's where the light bulb is going to go off that, okay, yes, maybe in this upper middle class foster home, the child has a TV and access to the internet and all of these wonderful things that you would want for a child but they're happy with their parent and the parent has addressed those issues that brought the case to court. And that's ultimately where the child wants to be. And I think that, um, I think most of our volunteers get that. Um, and that's, you know, assuming that they're making, they're doing that proper investigation and, and seeing the child not only in one environment, but, but seeing them with their parent and seeing sort of that interaction. Dina continues. It can be difficult for guardian ad litem is where you've seen a change in the child. So for example, um, when the child was with the, the parent and maybe there was housing instability or a lot of moves and a lot of um, different schools, then you know the child's grades were low, that they were you know behind a grade, um, that there was um, some behavioral issues, some, some acting out. And then once they're moved into um, a foster home that's stable, and this is under the assumption that maybe they've maintained in a foster home um, with foster parents that are real dedicated, that their grades have risen. 
and um, their behaviors have gotten better. And so I think that's where you have the guardian ad litem having this, this difficulty of, well, look where the child is now because of the stability that's been put in place and then, and then being concerned about placing the child back with the parent. And I think that's where um, it's important for our guardians ad litem to advocate for, you know, a trial placement, for example, so that we can put the child back in the home um, and monitor how that's going to be with wraparound services and see how the child is going to do, understanding that a transition is always going to impact a child's behavior or, or those things. And I think that's something that certainly I think covered in training as well. Um, but I think um, they're human. And so when they're seeing a child that, that's doing, that's blossoming, you know, in this environment, it's difficult for them to see putting them back into a, a prior environment at the same time understanding that this child is bonded to their parent and that ultimately can impact the best interest. Um, so it's not, it's not an easy task. I also talked about the difference between best and adequate with Carmen and Dee. It's a tough conflict for the GALs, I think, because you're concerned is the minimum enough for this child. And that's something you struggle, you know, is the minimum enough? And, you know, at the end of the day, yes, it, it is enough, right? But you struggle because sometimes you know that they really deserve more than that. Um, so as a GAL volunteer, I know I struggle. Maybe as the, an attorney, you guys are a little bit, we, you know. It, it's, it's, it's still easy to struggle with those things. Our difference is we see it more frequently than, than right. you do just because of the volume right. of cases. But, you know, obviously the statutory language of safe, permanent home um, as, as best interest. I view best interest as child being happy, healthy, and safe. And the, the hard part with you kind of the balancing is, is best interest legally isn't putting foster parents, for instance, on a scale with, with parents and judging right. who's, who's better for a child. That's not what we do. No. And that can be a hard thing to do. It is um, a hard but that's thing. Not, but that's not what we do. But for me, you know, I want to make sure I think it's, every child deserves to be happy, healthy, and safe and to feel that way. The GAL recommendations don't just focus on whether the child should go back home to a parent, but also make recommendations about services that are needed so that the children can be in a safe and permanent home. The case plan will include services for the child and family that affect the ultimate outcome of the case. Dee, Carmen, and I talked about what happens when services the guardian and litem thinks are needed are not provided. What if they're not getting something they need? Are you able to make any sort of case or argument to the court to require that DSS do that or a parent do something? Yes. Yeah, definitely. That's one of the key elements of our report is what services we recommend for the child. Um, and uh, the judges are extremely supportive of that, um, of any of the recommendations. And then DSS is, you know, in the court order, they would be ordered um, to provide those. Now, in general, I haven't necessarily run into issues where DSS isn't providing services that we've recommended, um, but it can happen. And that is a key part of what, what we, um, our court report does. We certainly want um, to advocate for, for the specifics that children need to be included in court orders. So there's some teeth behind right. um, behind that. So you may ask that the court order the department to do something or that the court order the parents to do something or both. It's not everything is directed towards the parent necessarily. Is that right? Since most of our cases, we're talking about specifically the children, since most of our children are in the custody of Wake County Human Services, then we would be asking for Wake County Human Services to be ordered to do something. Parents are ordered to do other things. We, have, we do have cases where uh, children are left in the custody of their parents, and in those cases we would want the judge to order the parents to engage the children in therapy if that's what had been recommended. 
When there is disagreement about the recommendations, the GAL volunteer is likely to have to testify. Carmen talked about what that's like. You know, not having been in the court system, I'd say it is a little intimidating, especially um, when you get cross-examined if you've got a disagreement with a recommendation. Um, I was in the hot seat, you know, um, when I was in disagreement once with the recommendation of the social worker. And actually, in court, I was surprised the judge could also ask me questions, and she aggressively asked me some questions with regard to visitation. And um, it was, you know, you just try to have to focus. You know, I've been in business, and so I've, I've dealt a lot in business meetings and things like that, but court is so different, you know, um, because in business you're advocating just for, a, you know, a technical fact. It's not emotional. It's not, you know, it's not opinion. You've got facts, and you're, you're pleading your case. In this case, it is true. You've got your facts as well, but there's judgment, right? That There's judgment. How do you interpret those facts? So you feel like um, it is intimidating, um, but you just try to be as professional. At least I go into my professional mode, and I just try to put it that way, that it's not personal. You know, you're just trying to give your interpretation of the facts. And it was intimidating. I I feel more confident now that I've gone through it a few times, um, but the first time was definitely a little scary, you know. Because you are in the hot seat, right? You're in the hot seat. You have your attorney who's calling you as a witness, but then you have the DSS attorney who can cross-examine you, each parent's attorney who can cross-examine you. If somebody else is a party in the case and has an attorney, they can cross-examine you, and the judge can ask questions. That is all correct. That is all correct. In general, um, when there's a lot of agreement, let's say, between DSS and the GAL, it's a little easier because they primarily then start questioning, you know, they kind of hit the hard balls to DSS. but in cases where there's some disagreement, you're right, anybody can ask. It's the attorneys and, you know, both the state attorneys and the parents' attorneys, as well as the judge, right? So it is, um, uh, in the end, I don't want to scare anybody off because, you know, <laughs> because in the end, if you've done your investigation, you've just got to you've just got to represent it. You know, you just have to go, I, I put myself just in this kind of fact mode, you know, like, it's not personal. You know, and they're just asking you questions just to answer them to the best of your ability. They may agree with you, they may not in the end, and it's it's not personal. You've done the best you could in your investigation and your interpretation of those facts. And um, but I will agree, it's intimidating. Yes. <laughs> when homelessness and housing instability are part of the reason for the department's involvement with the family, the guardian and Lanham can make recommendations about that as well. Cindy Bissell talks about that. I think our I think by and large, our volunteer guardians ad litem and our staff have a presumption that having stable housing is in a child's best interest. If reunification was dependent on a parent having stable housing, I think our volunteers would do everything they could to ensure that resources were ordered by the court so that that parent could have stable housing. I talked about this with Dee as well. And so what do you do in a situation if the parent isn't able to find affordable, stable housing, but everything else in terms of what, what they need to do has been done? How, what would a best interest recommendation be? That's really hard. If housing is the, the one thing that's keeping a child from going to a parent, that's, I, I don't, I was thinking about it earlier, I don't, I don't remember a case where the judge has said, all right, I'm fine with returning custody to a parent when they don't have a place to live. Maybe they're living with their mother or their cousin or their friend, but where they don't have a place to live. I mean, in our cases, parents are generally always ordered to 
obtain and maintain stable housing or just maintain stable and appropriate housing. Um, a lot of times we'll become not parent advocates, but we, you'll advocate for a social worker making a different <clears throat> referral. Social workers are all different. Some social workers are gung ho. Will make all the will go out and, and, and spend hours and hours and hours trying to help this person find housing. Mm -hmm. Others kind of are more hands off and say, okay, well you need to you need to go look at some of these resources and go do it on your own. So we want to, if we think it's best for the child to go with the parent, but for the, the housing, then we certainly want to advocate for the social workers to help the parent find housing or figure out to help figure out why the parent is struggling to find housing. Even though children are represented by a guardian ad litem and the guardian ad litem is submitting a report and testifying at the hearing, the children may also be present at court. Remember, the children are parties and that means they have a right to be in court. Sometimes they have to be in court because they're the only witness to something like their own abuse, and the only way the department can prove the abuse happened is through the testimony of the child. But other times, the child's testimony is not needed to prove something, but their presence may be appropriate. Dee and I talked about factors he considers. How do you decide whether or not a, the child that you're representing should come to court for any or all of the hearings? So, for, for the, the first easy answer is age. A, age is a big a big difference. There's there's a, you know four or five year old child may not be able to handle hearing different things or seeing their parent who's incarcerated. Uh, a sixteen or seventeen year old may may have visited their parent while they're in jail or prison and is, is okay seeing them in an orange jumpsuit. Um, so age is a big thing. Content of the hearing is another thing. I mean a lot of times if it's an adjudication hearing, um, and I know we're talking about neglect. If it's adjudication hearing. Sometimes you don't want children to listen to all the, what they would perceive as really negative things being said about their parents. But if you're at a permanency planning or a review hearing where you're talking about parents' progress and, and, and how visits are going and those things, um, then they're, they're more, they're, they're, they're usually more able to come to those hearings and the judges are more willing to have them at those hearings. For me, it's big because those are the hearings where the child is able to, to really talk to the judge more openly. Although a child can be in court at any age, North Carolina law specifically requires that children who are 12 or older receive notice of every review and permanency planning hearing in the case. After getting that notice, the child may tell his or her guardian ad litem, the DSS social worker, a placement provider, or his or her parent that he or she wants to go to the hearing. Judges Hartsfield, Siler Mack, and Corpening talk about the children being in their courtroom. My GAL attorney will always say, well, judge, um, you know, so-and-so is 13 or 14, and he has requested that he have an audience with you today, so they're in court, because I'm one of those sticklers for kids not coming to court, because I don't like for children to miss school. Um, but, you know, in those circumstances where they have a right, they've expressed that right to, the, to their attorney, and, you know, yeah, they come. And we have that, and our superintendent has a new policy that has um, every minute counts. So likewise, they're not going to miss school, but if the GAL has informed me that they want to come and speak to me, I will set a specific time after school. They come in, and I will bring them, and I will take them in chambers along with my clerk. Never alone. Never talk to them by themselves. So someone is always there so that they can have their voice and they can be comfortable. But um, if we're going... Um, on a date before and we it, we can't get them before school gets out 
the attorneys will say, Judge, we don't have a problem with the social worker bringing them to your office on this date at this time. In the event that they do that, I make sure that the DSS attorney is there, the GAL is there, and um, the defense attorneys are there to see the child come in my office. They're not going to go, but I want them to see, and I find out about how long, and then I have them come back. So everybody is aware. No one says, well, I didn't know that they were coming on Tuesday to talk to you, because had I known, I would have been there. So we set out a date specific and a date time so that that child's voice, especially at 12, they have the right. The statute says, and I've had some lately that said, I want to talk to you. And they want to talk and be heard. And a lot of times, if you just hear them, um, they may come in with one thing on their mind that this is what they're going to say. But if you just allow them to vent, so to speak, then and you explain what the process. Because a lot of times when those children, I'm not saying all the time, but when children want to come in and have an audience with you, nobody's really explained the process about what's going on. They know a non-secure was served. They got moved, removed from the home. They can't go. You tell me my parents, something is going on, but you can't tell me what their problem is. Nobody wants to tell. All I know is for the last eight months, I've stayed at this foster home, or I may have gone here. But nobody's talking to me about what's going on with me. I'm not in counseling. Somebody needs to understand what's really, and sometimes the children have insight about things that nobody else has told you about, and you learn. So, so when the statute was first written to authorize children to come to court, to, to say it's their right to be there, I thought it was a terrible idea. I, I'll confess, I thought it was awful because the, the things that we hear about their parents in that mm. room are horrible. They're atrocious. But what I've learned over time is that these kids want to be there because they've lived that nightmare. And they're, and, and you know, especially as, as they're older than 12 and they're 13, 14, 15, 16, even 17, they're there almost in open defiance of their parent. I've had a 17-year-old, not only who wanted to be there, but wanted to testify, and she looked at her parents in the eye and said, neither of you should ever have been parents. Um, it's a, it can be a very powerful experience. Uh, and I can hear, you know, lawyer for mom or lawyer for dad arguing, and the child is sitting there in front of me beside uh, the attorney advocate because the guardian gives the child a front seat with the attorney advocate. And, and that child's just sitting there shaking their head the whole time that parent's, you know, just saying, come on, tell the truth, come on, tell the truth. And, that's, and so it's, 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 I think it's a very powerful experience for them to be there and to hear all that. I never would have thought that this is the way I would think today. But that's been my evolution just in my interactions with kids. And now I, I insist that kids come. Um, and uh, most of the time our conversations happen in open court. Uh, sometimes they'll ask to talk in the back. Typically, that's when they want to say, I don't want to go back to my mom and dad, no matter what you hear. <laughs> you know, exactly. Don't tell anybody, but I don't want to go back no matter what. I'm like Judge Corbin. I was like, you know, do I really want to talk to these kids? You know, I don't even want to put them on the spot like that, you know. But I've had success with this. I'll ask, they'll say, you know, I don't want to go back. My dad's really this and that. So I'll say, come on. I'll get a pencil or piece of paper if they're real young. I'll get crayons that are colorful. I say, tell me some things that you would that your daddy could do to make you feel more safe in your home. They'll actually write the plan for you. 
They'll ask you, you know, he needs to quit drinking. He needs to quit doing this, you know. And they'll tell you things that, you know, are affecting them and their families that they want to see corrected. And, you know, i like to see him go get some help for this, for that. I wish he wouldn't say bad words. I mean, it may be as basic as that, but they will give you a roadmap into what's really going on and the things that are making them feel unsafe in that house. So I think, again, even though I, I, I didn't like it at first, I, I really get a lot of mileage out of those conversations I have, even with young children that, you know, in my jurisdiction, a lot of times they say, well, you've talked to them before, you know, and they've met with you. You had an interview and we'll do interviews where the kid is um, on a telecast and the parents are in the room and in the courtroom. We go into another room and they can see them, but they can't see us, uh, which has been effective as well. But kids say the darndest things that shows you how old I am but honestly they do and a lot of times those darndest things can help you to formulate a plan that can move toward reunification. Whether it's through the GAL alone or the GAL and the child, the court considers the child's perspective when making its dispositional orders including the final disposition of the case. Tune in to our next and last episode to learn about how a case ends when a permanent plan is achieved for the family and for the child and find out what happens in our remaining court case. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sarah DiBasquale. I'd like to thank the following people who were featured in today's episode. Cindy Bizzle, Dina Fleming, Dee Hoard, Carmen Muggy, Judge Hartsfield, Judge Tyler Mack, and Judge Corkinen. This episode was produced by Stephanie Pankey and Duncan Yetman, with production help from Ben Trybulski. You can subscribe to Beyond the Bench on iTunes or Stitcher, And while you're there, please leave us a review. We want to hear your feedback. To learn more about my work and the various educational outreach products and programs by the UNC School of Government, visit us online at sog.unc.edu. See you next time.